and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're exploring the genetic secrets of squid, what has made squid so difficult to genetically manipulate, and why are scientists sending squid into space? When Squid Game went viral on Netflix last year, I watched it with great anticipation, only to be disappointed by the scarcity of cephalopods on screen. Yes, there was drama in the uneasy alliances between players and the ingenuity of the characters to solve the challenges thrown at them, but I would argue there is just as much drama to be found in the world of actual squid. And so, for the next half an hour, I'll be uncovering the underwater dramas of squid, their intimate alliances with glowing bacteria, how their ingenious eggshells have frustrated geneticists, and even sending squids into space. So to begin with, I sat down with squid biologist and science communicator Dr Sarah McAnulty. First things first then, what exactly is a squid? So a squid is a type of marine invertebrate, but effectively they're a type of cephalopod. The other cephalopods are octopuses, cuttlefish, squid, of course, and the nautilus. They have a mantle. They have eight arms and two tentacles. Arms are muscular and have suction cups all along the limb. And then tentacles are super rubbery and stretchy and are mostly used for grabbing prey. So that's generally speaking what a squid is. Wait, so there's a difference between arms and tentacles. So do oct- octopuses have eight appendages? Do they have eight arms or eight tentacles? Good question. They have eight arms. They don't have any tentacles. No tentacles. Honestly, you know, if you call an octopus arm a tentacle, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Colloquially, that's totally normal to do. So like, you True, know. True, but if you're that person at parties that goes around <laughs> saying how many tentacles does an octopus have, someone says eight, you're like, well, actually, a, a, an octopus doesn't have any. You could be that person. Yeah, I would encourage you to not be that person. Because then you won't get invited to the party. That's again. exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> we got to lighten up a little. But you could, uh, you could if you wanted to, be that person. And you are a squid scientist. Squids are your life from what I can tell online. What's so great about squids? Squid are the coolest. There are so many different ways to be a squid. I think that's really exciting. They live all over the world in shallow water, deep water, everywhere. But what I think is really interesting about squid and cephalopods broadly is that they diverged from us evolutionarily so, so long ago. We have had squids on, or at least cephalopods, on planet Earth before there were trees. They've had a lot of time to develop into these incredibly complex behaviorally and in other ways too, animals. Wait, I'm just processing. We've had squids are older than trees. Cephalopods broadly, yeah, we've had longer than trees, which is pretty, it's honestly like kind of hard to think about Earth without trees. So when you say they're cephalopods, not squids, what did they look like at that time? Because how do they fossilize? They're just balls of goo. You're right, they're just goo. So back then they had shells. So the first cephalopod about, yeah, about 500 million years ago, 
basically looked like a traffic cone with some arms sticking out the end. Pretty much at the beginning, there were just a bunch of mollusks walking around on uh, the seafloor. And then one invented the idea of floating above everybody else. And so that was the first cephalopod. From there, a lot of them ended up with spiral shells. Some got huge as long as like six meters. Some were three meters and round. I mean, they were really, really big. How big is the the giants? There's the giant squid and there's the colossal squid. Yes. I don't know which one's bigger. Depends on how you, how you uh, think about it. So the giant squid is a touch longer, but the colossal squid is bigger by mass in general. They're they're volumetrically bigger. They're huge. They're really really like chunky. How long is it? I think we generally clock them yeah between like ten and thirteen meters. And how have squid been used? in biology because I know famously they've got very big neurons yes and so they have like visible to the eye nerve cells that was key in dissecting and working out what nerve cells are was that a giant squid or do all squid have giant nerve cells great question so this is a common misconception it's not giant squid axons it's a giant Squid axon. Gotcha. A giant axon that happens to be present in squid. And they're, the market squid, which is common all over the East Coast of the U.S. Called a market squid. I'm guessing it's the one that's It's the one markets. that we're eating. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's eating calamari. A calamari. Yeah. I often call it the calamari squid. Anyway, um, they have a big, big axon. It's very easy comparatively to manipulate and do this method called the patch clamp method, which is basically a way that neuroscientists can measure action potentials or how neurons deliver messages to one another and really worked out how that all works, what chemicals were being exchanged between neurons. Like, you know, a lot of our really fundamental understanding of how neurons work came from squid axons. One thing I found bizarre researching this episode was that the first squid was genetically manipulated only like a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Catch up, squid biologists. What's been going on? Why are squids so hard to genetically manipulate? So they they are hard to genetically manipulate because they're hard to raise in the lab. They're a real pain in the butt to keep alive. So we just recently got their genome sequenced. We have the Hawaiian bobtail squid genome sequenced. That happened a couple years ago. Very cute looking squid. Incredibly cute. My gosh. They're relatively easy to raise, all things considered. The squid are the other squid, like the um, the market squid, the squid that they did all of that fundamental neuroscience research on. They're very hard to raise. I don't know if anybody's successfully done it. There have been some other squid that are what we call pelagic, aka like up and swimming in the seawater as opposed to sitting on the sand. If a squid or a cephalopod sits on the sand, they're easier to raise because you don't need as much space for them. They're not as energetically active. So they're easier to feed. They're easier to keep clean. Like they generally are just easier. If you have an animal that's up and swimming all the time, really metabolically active, it's just harder. It's harder to keep them fed. It's harder to prevent them from pooping so much that it makes their system dirty and then not healthy for them. They're not happy. And it's really important to keep your lab animals happy to do good science. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is uh, a lot of the like, micro injections so that's how they get the experimental juices in there in the first place figuring out how to effectively micro inject a squid egg was one of the things that really drove scientists up the wall for a while there because their their eggs are really rubbery and the corian which is like the the last layer before you hit 
the embryo is just tough to get through. So we would be like, we scientists, I, I've tried this and like totally failed. So I am not one of the people that succeeded at this, but you would like put a little glass needle into the squid egg and it would just bend the needle. It, it would be like, nice try. Not going to happen. So wait, describe a squid egg to me. How big is it? Depends on the squid. Very variable. Some are like as big as a small marble. Some of them are like um, maybe like the head of a big pin, like one of those big okay. uh, like a pins. Yeah. Yeah. Like a map pin. Exactly. That's like a bobtail squid egg size ish. Okay. So you, you can see it. Oh, totally. It's not like a human egg. What makes it so strong? Because I'm guessing it doesn't have like a hard eggshell, like a calcium eggshell like a chicken. Exactly correct. Yeah. So generally speaking, squid eggs have the corian that holds the baby and then a bunch of layers of jelly on top of that. Many female squid, including bobtail squid, market squid, reef squid, they have this organ inside of them called an ANG. And the ANG houses a bunch of different kinds of bacteria that the female squid will put into the jelly coat of the eggs of the squid, the baby squid. And the reason that they do this is that this bacteria creates antibiotics and antifungals, which protect the baby squid when they lay the eggs. If you've ever seen an octopus laying eggs, they'll lay eggs and then sit with those eggs until they hatch and then the octopus dies. Like in the Netflix film. Like in the Netflix film. Right. So they have to like constantly be blowing air over the eggs. They need to be like touching the eggs, cleaning the eggs, taking care of the eggs. And they starve while they're doing it, right? And they starve while they're doing it. Yeah, it's like the end of their life. It's their last mission on Earth. But squid don't have to do that because they let the bacteria do all the work for them. And so there are, if you cut a squid egg in half, this is true of at least bobtail squid eggs, cuttlefish eggs, it kind of looks like onion layers of like jelly. So all of the onion layers are all, it's like jelly and then a harder surface jelly, harder surface, down to the corian, which is that last layer before the baby, and then the baby in the middle. And in all of those onion layers, you see little bacteria all throughout that jelly that are actively producing the antibiotics, antifungals. And there's a lot of work happening on that right now. And it's, we're hoping over time to be able to say, okay, this bacterium produces this compound, and maybe we could take some of those compounds and use them for antifungals and antibiotics for human use because Lord knows we're running out of those. Squid are really good at delegating work to bacteria. <laughs> they are, yeah. For camouflage, for protecting their eggs, all kinds of things. Because we're going to be talking later on the podcast about their relationship with light producing bacteria and then sending them up into space. But they also are like, we don't need a hard eggshell. We'll just let bacteria do all the work for us. Exactly. We don't need to starve ourselves. We'll just let bacteria do it. That's right. That's right. Very clever. So it's physically getting the DNA into the egg that's the issue. It's nothing like they don't have like weird DNA or they don't have strange genes that's the issue with genetically manipulating them. It's literally physically getting the liquid into the egg. I mean, I think the process that the scientists who were working on this, they were like, every time they solved a problem, they'd run into a new headache. And two of the big problems were getting the liquid in there and keeping them alive after. So those were two of the issues and also not having enough genetic information. But we have that part covered now. We've got the genome. We've got uh, we've gotten way better at keeping squid happy and healthy in captivity. And they figured out the right needles and everything to use for manipulating the eggs. So things have gotten a lot better. A lot of people put a lot of work in to make that happen. 
And what do you think the next steps are going to be? Now we can finally genetically play around with these squid. What what are the big questions in squid biology that people haven't been able to answer so far because they haven't had these genetic tools? That's a good question. I mean, it depends on what part of science you're in. One of them might be about how they do RNA editing. One of the things that cephalopods, that a lot of animals do, but cephalopods do a little bit more than average is Okay, so as I think people probably listening to a genetics podcast are aware, you've got your DNA, you've got your RNA, you take your RNA, you make a protein. And for for most cases, you make your RNA and you're good to go. You use that copy and you make your protein. With cephalopods, they can toss a step in there where they edit the RNA depending on what they're experiencing in life. So there's the, the famous example is this octopus that can change one of its proteins depending on whether it's in a cold environment or a warm environment. They change one of those proteins around to be better for that situation. So rather than changing how the gene is expressed, it expresses the gene, like it produces the same number of RNA copies, but then changes what protein is made as a result. Right. That's bonkers. It's totally, totally bonkers. Yeah. It's like basically the same protein, but it's like a different isoform of the protein. It's like a different version of the protein. I'm just thinking what I would do if I was able to change my genes based on whether I'm hot or cold or not. That's right. Yeah. If you were in a famine or not, you know, maybe that is something that you would change. Maybe you'd change your metabolism. Maybe you'd change something about your skin, like any number of things. It's pretty cool. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. Why not tweet about your favourite episode so that your friends can see what excellent taste in podcasts you have? We've just heard from Sarah McAnulty about what excellent delegators squid are, handing over care of their young to bacteria in the gelatinous egg layers. Well, now we're looking at another bacterial symbiosis, but this time it's a bit more flashy, as in the bacteria literally produce light. I chatted with Professor Jamie Foster, a microbiologist at the University of Florida, working on symbiotic relationships between host animals and their microbes. Part of her research involves sending baby squid into space, That's right, glowing squid in space. Why was my research never that cool? So first things first, who are the partners in this symbiotic relationship? And why does a squid need to glow in the dark? This symbiosis is unique in a few different ways. First of all, it's a partnership between a bioluminescent bacteria, a bacteria that has the ability to glow in the dark, essentially. And the bobtail squid, the Latin name, the scientific name is Euprimnus scolopes. And this is a squid that's indigenous to Hawaii. And not a lot of people know about it. Even uh, when I started working on this animal 30 years ago, even a lot of local folks from Hawaii didn't uh, know about the little squid that glue in the dark around them. They're only about maybe three or four centimeters in length. So they're very small and that's full grown. And when they're born, they're only about two or three millimeters. We call them paralarvae because they're just like miniature adults when they're born. And uh, they're incredibly cute. So once you've seen one, 
you're going to fall for this little creature because he's very, they're very adorable. And the, the other partner in all of this is a bacterium called Vibrio fisheri. And there's a lot of bad Vibrios out there, things that can make you sick if you eat shellfish that's not cooked properly. But this Vibrio is a very benign, a friendly source that doesn't cause disease in its hosts. And it colonizes a very special organ called the light organ of the squid. And this symbiosis has evolved for over millions of years to give the squid the ability to use that light made by the bacteria to hide from predators. And we call that whole process counter-illumination. It's kind of like a Harry Potter cloaking device. The squid is able to use the light from the bacterium and hide itself from the downwelling moonlight. So it's basically casting no shadow. So any predator looking up can't see the, the squid. Because this is surprising to me is that shining light makes you more hidden. Right. I would have thought that shining a torch in the middle of the ocean, you're, you're lit up, you're making yourself more obvious. Well, in a way, can, if you imagine if you're standing in front of uh, the headlights of a car and then you shine your flashlight out, you're, you're kind of matching the light coming from behind you. Thus, you're, you're kind of hiding your shadow that would be apparent in the light. So it, it's just a way for you to manipulate your environment and camouflage yourself. And so this is a little different in the symbiosis world because most of the time in the symbiosis world, you're exchanging nutrients. And there is an exchange of molecules and a food, but it's instead of bacteria feeding the animal, it's the animal feeding the bacteria. And that's a little unusual because they're getting this behavior out of this relationship. The squid can live without the bacteria, but like I said, it doesn't... It, it loses this defense capability, so it's more vulnerable when it doesn't have its partner. And who wants to live a dull, drab life when you've got the option of literally glowing? <laughs> well, I think it shows the importance, and this is why we use it and we study this symbiosis, is that symbiosis is so important for animal health and development. All animals, I don't know of a single animal that doesn't form some sort of positive relationship with bacteria. Our microbiomes are complex. There's many different species of them. So to understand what any given one bacterium is doing in our guts or on our skin or in our bodies is really hard to do. And that's why these partners studying a little glow-in-the-dark squid is so important because there's just this single bacterium, this one symbiont living inside this one animal. So you can really tease apart the benefits and the interactions and the dialogue that's happening between the squid and its beneficial microbe. So tell me more about this conversation. So how does it start? Are these squid born with these bacteria? Where do they get them from? Who, who's starting that dialogue? Right. So it's actually the squid is born without bacteria. And every generation of new baby squid have to acquire the microbes from their environment. And on the light organ itself, there are these little fuzzy arm-like structures that are covered in what we call ciliated cells. They brings in bacteria from the environment to the light organ. They're bringing in all kinds of bacteria. They're bringing it nonspecific, but they're looking for specific signals from the right bacterium. And the bacteria on the flip side 
they're just kind of floating around and they're shedding the outer part of their cell membrane or quote unquote their skin like and they're just secreting these kinds of molecules and so when you have the right bacteria and the right squid then you can actually initiate this conversation where the bacteria receives these shedded materials these signals they're called lipopolysaccharides i know it's a big word for a sugar but it's being released and received by the squid and then once you once the bacteria have given the secret code they actually are allowed to go into the light organ and travel downward let's go a bit more specifically into this light organ so it's a specific part of the body that has these light producing bacteria where is it what does it look like how big is it so if a squid is about three or four centimeters long it's probably about one centimeter in width and and it's bilobed so there's like a mirror image and the structure of this light organ is really unique it's almost like an eyeball it has these little sacs where the bacteria live and then it's surrounded by what's called the reflector and it's a series of highly reflective proteins that can literally reflect the light and manipulate that. And there's all this musculature and a lens, and it actually acts almost like this eyeball-like thing. This is very unusual to this particular group of, they're actually called sepiolids. They're not technically a squid, but they are very closely related. These sepiolids have this special organ. Are you telling me a bobtail squid isn't actually a squid? I know, I know. That's where I... I... We'll, we'll get into that another time. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I know about animals and bacteria is we certainly have an immune system. Do squids have an immune system? Yes, they do. So how does it not... Like, we spend a lot of our energy making sure that bacteria don't enter us and infect us. Where here, it's got to deliberately pick out one specific bacterial species how does it know which ones to accept and and not accidentally get infected with something else yeah that's a serious problem that people are looking at we have bacteria that get to all the right places too and our immune systems are just trying to clear out every bacteria so there's a learning process of what's health and what's danger you know what is good bacteria and what is bad bacteria and the body has to all animals have to kind of figure that out these squid have these cells called hemocytes, which are, they're like little macrophages. They have the ability to go up, taste a microbe. <laughs> Literally, they'll engulf a couple of them and say, okay, are you, do you have the right signal or do you not have the right signal? And then if they have the right signal, then those hemocytes ignore that vibrio fissurae for the rest of its life. So these hemocytes are constantly moving through the body of the squid as sentinels trying to understand what's good, what's bad, and keeping the bad guys away. And it, what's interesting is the language that the, the immune system uses or a pathogen versus a mutualistic bacteria often uses the same language. And that is a big question in science is what's the balance between health and disease? Where do you you know, tip the balance and all of a sudden this becomes a pathogenic. Is it, is it too much of signal A? Is it too much of signal B? And that's something we're still in the process of learning. You know, they're using the same language. They have the same words or the same vocabulary, but it's how they're constructing their sentences that is really what's defining whether it's a pathogen or if it's a beneficial microbe. So the lexicon might be the same, 
but the synteny of the words might be really different between a good guy and a bad guy in terms of the immune system's perspective. You catch the spy because it's doing a terrible accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And what happens to the light organ when all these bacteria have taken, taken up residence? Those little ciliated arm structures, they die off. They've done their job. So they undergo a developmental process and actually get lost. And the squid just, we just call it maturation. Are they losing their little hairs, their little cilia, because they're just getting older? Or is that in response to the presence of bacteria? If a squid never sees a bacterium in its life, there are some reports that they will stay, but that just doesn't happen in the natural world. I mean, it's only under artificial situations that some people have started to explore uh, what happens when you don't have the right bacterial signal. But that's really cool because it means that you've got this huge change in which genes are being expressed and which ones are being turned on and turned off just by the presence of a bacteria. So it's almost like a bacterial cell is influencing the genes of a completely different species. Oh, and that happens all the time. That happens not just in this little squid, but in all animals and plants and fungi. Bacteria rule the world, really. They can play a huge role in gene regulation of all animals, so other bacteria, other microbes, or, or eukaryotes like plants, animals, fungi. So it is a huge paradigm shift in thinking of the importance that bacteria have had in the evolution, development, and health of what we consider more complex organisms. But in the end, uh, they are just influencing and controlling. And that's why, that's why I think we have got to spend more time understanding the microbiome and its full permutations. Right now, you know, we know that people with diabetes, people who are obese, people who have all these other underlying health conditions have these unique composition or communities of microbes. And are they a product of the disease or are they causing the disease? And that is a huge question mark right now that people are just beginning to explore. Now that we have the tools, the DNA tools to go after all of these partners in this in these complex symbioses we might be able to get a, a more complete answer to those kinds of questions now you mentioned earlier putting these squid in artificial situations it doesn't get much more artificial for a squid than sending it up into space which is something that you've been doing so okay so squids in space why jamie what's why do they have little astronaut helmets floating around chilling around what, what why are you sending them up in rockets I know that sounds very bizarre, that why would you take this aquatic organism and put it up into space where you would think that they're neutrally buoyant in the ocean? Why would you expect any difference in, in the space environment? But to be honest with you, gravity informs all animals on the planet. We get directional cues. We're, we're constantly at the mercy. It's the one thing on the planet that hasn't changed in four and a half billion years. So Taking away gravity from the conversation is a kind of a bioassay to understand new ways that bacteria and animals or, or how animals respond to different kinds of stress environments. Because it's not something that they've evolved to. No, no. They're not used to being in microgravity. No organism, you know, no terrestrial organism is used to spaceflight. 
So I have two angles. One is I'm very interested in how astronaut health is going to be impacted by long-term spaceflight. You know, if you're an astronaut headed off to Mars and all of a sudden your lactobacillus goes extinct halfway on the journey, is that going to be a problem? How are you going to mitigate that problem? That's one of the key gut bacteria, isn't it? Lactobacillus. Lactobacillus. You might know that when you buy that probiotic yogurt and you're eating it. That's why I say it because almost everybody knows a little bit about lactobacillus because it's very common in probiotics. So if you're headed off to Mars, we got, you know, are you in danger of something going wrong with your microbiome? So part of this question of understanding the dialogue and the impact that the stress of being in space, and it's not just microgravity, it's also radiation, all of these things, how does that affect astronaut health? But there's a flip side to this. Everything we do in space really informs and helps us understand things on the ground. And one of those questions is, what happens when you remove gravity? Is gravity obscuring some new pathway or some new way that bacteria and animals talk to each other? And so that's kind of the the other side of this coin is when we remove gravity and give them this really novel stress, the animal doesn't quite know how to respond. So it starts firing off stress receptors and stress responses and all these things. And we get to see new ways that the bacteria are, are functioning. And so it seems silly to send squid up, but you want simple models that are easy to manipulate, that are small, don't weigh a lot, and can get you a lot of information in a short period of time. And that's why we send these little cephalonauts into space. Oh, I love that. So what are you doing when you're sending them up? What's a rough experiment like? Because they're going up to the International Space Station, the ISS. Right. So what happens? Do you stick them in a test tube, send them up? What, what are you testing? We put them in little bags that have little connectors on either side that we can pump in new water or we can pump in whatever we're testing or we pump in bacteria and we automate everything because astronaut time is rather precious. They're rather busy people. And then we can capture the animals at certain time points across uh, whatever the experimental timeline we want. And then when the astronauts would can help us process and pack everything away and bring them back to us on Earth. And then we can go explore what happened, you know, during the experiment and capture that. So you're looking right in that early window of these sterile baby squid. Right. Getting these bacteria for the very first time. Right. We want to see how you start that conversation. So we were looking at like zero hour, two hour, six hour, 12 hours, very early stages because the conversation happens fast. Genes turn on and off within nanoseconds. And so you want to be able to capture that if, if the conversation is happening fast. So we had done some ground experiments. We had simulated microgravity. And this is another thing where before you even get to space, you have to do a lot of planning and a lot of replicates of your experiment on the ground. So there's a lot of testing just to get this one little experiment off into space. But I understand why it's, it's important to make sure you're going to get good data from uh, these very big initiatives. And what data do we have? What so far has sending squid into space told us about host microbe interactions? Well, I can't go too d- in details, but I will say that we're exploring the hypothesis that having your beneficial microbes is helping you modulate the stress response in space. So 
Meaning when you don't have your microbes, so those, again, we were talking in an artificial situation withholding the beneficial microbes, they actually on the ground show a higher stress response than when the animals have their bacteria. So the bacteria are kind of saying, hey, everything's okay. You can relax. You know, it's like a comfort blanket for the squid. Yeah, exactly. You have your comfort vibrios, you know, when you go into space. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Sarah McAnulty and Jamie Foster. We'll be back next time to find out about the etiquette of having your family for dinner. By which, of course, I mean cannibalism among relatives. Kids meal, anyone? For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings and reviews push podcasts onto the front page where more people can find out about us. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.